Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? Oh, thanks for asking. I'm soldiering on. I'm a brave boy. I've got this thing that's that's going around. Everyone's got it. Sore throat, bit of a temperature. So I said to Ed and everyone, I, I don't know if um, you should be coming here because I could infect you. And we were sympathetic. You were so sympathetic. You were sending me messages saying, oh, you poor thing. And then I felt guilty because this really is a bit of a nothing. The interesting thing is that I think the word temperature is the thing that is, that's the swing for me. Ah. If there's no temperature... It's sort of man flu, isn't it, really? Let me tell you, my my wife is exactly the same. And I resent this, that you're not really ill unless you have a temperature. I think that's the flip for me. What's the flip for you, though? I just think I'm a better person than you are, because if somebody says to me, oh, I don't feel great, I don't instantly think, well, I want to see that thermometer. (laughs) I just think, oh... But to be fair, I I mean, to be fair, I think I don't know why I've become the villain in this conversation. (laughs) I was incredibly sympathetic. You got irritated about me being sympathetic. Now I've become less sympathetic and now you're irritated about me being less sympathetic. I felt guilty. It wasn't irritation. I felt guilty about receiving the sympathy. But but I now do feel irritated about the whole temperature thing. Well, I now feel irritated. (laughs) How is your health, though? Any ailment that you want to bring up? Slightly sprained thumb, but... Uh, oh, no, that's, that's, that's terrible. How did that happen? <laughs> See, this is what sympathy know. looks like. I wish I hadn't mentioned the thumb now, given the sort of fake sympathy. Do you feel that you don't see people with bandaged thumbs as much anymore? Oh, stop it. <laughs> okay, okay. So I think I've decided that cooking is my hobby. Tell me more about what it's doing for you. I may try and surmount the vegetarian lasagna this coming weekend. Oh. What do you think about that? Well, I love a good veggie lasagna, but I think you can easily end up making something that tastes like uh, it's from uh, the cafe in an arts centre in 1987. Did they make vegetarian lasagnas in the cafe in the arts centre in 1987? I think that was maybe all all they made, that and stuffed Mm. peppers. 
How do you avoid that? I think there's it's a, all about the recipe, isn't it? There's a friend of mine called Janet, who, who's a party member in my constituency. She makes a fantastic vegetarian lasagna, and I keep asking her for the recipe, but I think she was one of these people who can just do it by instinct. From her head, yeah. What's your views on bechamel sauce? I like a bechamel sauce. Oh, interesting. What, what's your problem Not with it? Not too goopy. Where are you getting your um, recipe from? There's a... Um, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, as previously mentioned, uh, friend of the pod. Uh, but his seems to be involving aubergines, and I think just aubergines might not quite be right. I think there's a lot to go wrong with an aubergine. When you get it right with an aubergine, oh, magnificent. But if if you don't, they can be quite horrible in terms of texture. That is a full frontal attack on the aubergine. The Royal Society for the Protection of Aubergines will be on you for this. No, I love an aubergine. I'm just saying... No, there's, okay, a... well, there's no point now trying to sort of backtrack on the aubergine. Because I was really hoping for some kind of endorsement deal from the Royal Society for the Protection exactly. of Aubergines. Um, yeah. No, I think they're great. But I feel like in this country, we didn't figure out what to do with them until about 2005. And... Um, a lot of the recipes predate that. Maybe listeners could tell us their veggie lasagna. That could be a big shortcut for you. Who will you be inflicting this upon? You, maybe. Be still. If, if it's my nice, my heart. family, if it's a bit more questionable. <laughs> <laughs> it's going in the Tupperware and coming round here. Yeah, exactly. I wish you well with it. Thank you, Wallow. That's And I wish you well with your um, <clears throat> illness. <laughs> now, shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Why don't we? This week is a special episode where we join forces with podcasting royalty, I think. Yes. We're the podcasting serfs in this scenario because our guest is... I think serfs is a bit self-deprecating, isn't it? So where do you want to put us in the podcasting class system then? Barons. I'll take it, yeah. Um, So we are going to be rounding on our guest and trying to get them to sign a podcasting Magna Carta then. Isn't that what barons do to royals? Yeah, maybe that's pretty impressive. Are we stretching the stretching the metaphor a bit? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe it's just time to move on. Okay, we're talking to the creator and host of Griefcast, Carrie Ad Lloyd. If you haven't come across Griefcast, it's a fantastic podcast. Carrie Ad talks to guests about their experience of grief of someone they've lost. Carrie's dad died when she was a, a teenager, and she is just such a brilliant, empathetic, emotionally intelligent, funny host and interviewer, and now author, because Carrie has a book called You Are Not Alone, A New Way to Grieve, and she writes wonderfully, and we thought it would be uh, an interesting conversation to have, because death is something we steer clear of and, and instantly feel a bit icky around. But there's a lot of optimism and beauty in what Cariad is doing, and uh, that's what we're hoping to find in this conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, we borrowed a dog for the weekend. Our friends went away, and we got to dog sit, and it was just great. You're covering your mouth as if you feel horrified by this. Is your is your is your reason to be cheerful also that you borrowed a dog? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> We, that is so weird. We could have gone for a dog walk together. This is the first time we've ever had the same reason to be cheerful. Wow. It, which, well, it, I mean, we've had the same reason to be cheerful as a sort of shared moment, but not as a sort of coincidental moment. This this is this is incredible. So the dog we borrowed was a Buggle, which is a cross between a Beagle and a Pug, called Bugsy. Jean had a great time with her. He really bonded with her. And she kept getting quite amorous with my leg. Don't push your luck, sunshine. Now, 
I thought that would be a funny thing to put on social media. So I asked my friend if I could, and they said, absolutely not. Don't shame her in that way. But I thought, what if I pixelated her face? I think not. Okay. Well, not not the dog humping my leg, but just generally getting to be with the dog for the weekend is my reason to be cheerful, as it is yours. So tell us I mean, more. That is so funny, isn't it? I'm actually going to show you a picture. Oh, what a beautiful dog. Am I looking at a King Charles Spaniel there? Y- yeah, I think so. Beautiful. So who is this dog then? This is Dylan. This is the the famous, the yeah. infamous Dylan. Yeah, I mean, he is really cute. Do you think it's a bit lookist, though, to say, well, he's cute? I mean, what if the dog's not cute? Anyway, let, let's come on to that in a second. <laughs> he is really, he is, I mean, he is such a nice dog. And it was so nice having him, actually. It was so, I mean, I'd get slightly worried because he's got a thing about squirrels. So we got slightly worried that he might get lost when we uh, when we take him out. You've, you've got um, to just trust that he's going to come back to you. Well, no, I put an air tag on him, actually. Like he's a young offender. Well, no, an air tag, like, uh, you know, one of those things that you can just, and then you know but where he's going to be. isn't that basically the acceptable version of an ankle bracelet? No, it's just like making sure I don't lose the dog. <laughs> Which would be unfortunate. And did you take the air tag off Dylan when you handed him back, or are you tracking him at all times? It's a good idea, actually. You've got a Dylan radar. Dylanometer. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here she is, the author. Not content with actor, comedian, podcaster, author now of You Are Not Alone, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you both. To see you nice. Have you, have you seen the book out in the wild? Have you been inspecting it in local bookshops? No, I saw it at the book launch. We had a book launch at Piccadilly Waterstones. So I saw it then on a shelf, but it also looked a bit like I had put it there. <laughs> Piccadilly Waterstones, that suggests that this is high priority for the publishers, though. This this is a big deal, Gary. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, Jeff. Writing about death in a cheery fashion, it's a big deal. <laughs> Before we get into it, something I was wondering is you describe yourself as the go to grief girl. Are you at a point now where you have to be careful how much of the work you accept, how many of the projects you work on are grief related because you, you do want there to be other slices in the pie chart as well? <laughs> yeah, since finishing the book, I suppose, because when I was writing it, it was kind of all consuming. I had to kind of just become Mrs. Grief. And that was you know, hard because I wrote it during the lockdown. So <laughs> it was like, what a time to write a book about death. Um and I am very lucky that I have Ostentatious, my improvised Jane Austen show, as a regular thing. So whenever I'm completely done in with grief, I can go and be very silly on stage. But yeah, I try. It's a balance, really, when you're talking about grief, because I think for most people, grief is a thing they don't want to talk about. And I've sort of gone the opposite way and made it like the only thing I'm talking about. But <laughs> so. but it's, it's actually what you've discovered is most people think they don't want to talk about grief, but they do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a topic everyone is desperate to talk about, but it's almost almost like I give permission by saying like, look, I'm not going to bore my eyes out. And like, I've had so many conversations now, I, I'm practiced at talking about grief. So yeah, I think most people, especially those in the club, as we say on Griefcast, are desperate to talk about their grief and their person. And most society gives the impression that they don't really want them to. Talk, Karen, if you wouldn't mind about where this began for you, because you, you talk about it very movingly in the book. Yeah, so the reason I do the podcast, Griefcast, where I interview people about their experiences of grief and death. My dad died when I was 15 of pancreatic cancer. So I've been talking about it for like a long time, kind of, I guess you'd say, behind closed doors to other people. You know, I might be at a party and I might be talking to someone and they might say, 
oh, sorry, like, you know, my mum just, something just happened. I'd be like, oh, oh, my dad died. And they'd be like, oh, my mum just died. And they'd be like, oh, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Because you'd like find this relief of finding someone. And then, yeah, in 2016, when podcasts were all the rage, as you remember back in those heady days, I thought, oh, if I had a podcast, I'd probably just talk to people about death. (laughs) And then I thought, well, that's a terrible idea. You can't do that. That's awful. But it just wouldn't go away as an idea. So I just recorded four episodes, put them out there and thought, well, it's done now. I've done it. Great. That idea can just go away. And um, then I started getting emails from people just saying, me too. I didn't know anyone else felt like this. I thought I was having a breakdown. I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, and you've made me realize it's just grief. And that's when I thought, oh, wow. Okay. It really isn't just me. There's loads of us that want to talk about it and loads of us that feel this way. So it kind of gave my podcast this impetus to continue, you know, rather than thinking, oh, no one really wants to listen to that. You know, it's always helpful, isn't it? When the audience go more. (laughs) Well, it is, but it also occurred to me that it's easy to book guests for a hit podcast, but how hard was it (laughs) initially? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so do you want to come on and talk about, a, 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 you know, someone you've lost? It was tough. I mean, the reason I spoke to comedians initially, obviously, I knew them. And so I knew that they would have to be slightly polite and turning me down because <laughs> they knew me and they might see me. But I remember writing to Adam Buxton because he had talked about his dad on his show. And so I felt like, OK, he's talking about it publicly. And he wrote back and he was like are you trained? <laughs> like, are you, is this a reason? And I was like, no, like my, my dad's dead. That's it. Like that's the training. And he was like, oh, okay. I chose people who had already talked about it. So like Jade Adams had done a show about her sister, Jenna and Sarah Pascoe is obviously my best pal for many years. And so, you know, she said she'd be happy to talk about her granddad. So I was very careful to choose people who I thought were you know in a good enough place to talk about it yeah it was hard initially definitely to approach people but obviously once the show did very well and did lots of podcast awards and you know won things and then people started approaching me and it became a lot less feeling like an ambulance chaser going do you want to talk about that by the way looking back on your dad's death knowing sort of what you know now what would have helped you then (laughs) a society more open to talking about death (laughs) like what was the experience like if you don't mind sharing it yeah yeah so I mean he died in 1998 so we're talking you know just before internet so just before being able to find other people in the situation that you're in that kind of connection that I think a lot of people have now with grief they can go on Instagram and type hashtag grief and find other podcasts and other people talking about it and I definitely lived in a world where I honestly thought he'd died of a very rare cancer and that what happened to us was actually really weird. And it wasn't until Pancreatic Cancer UK got in touch with me after this podcast and they were like, oh, it's the fifth biggest you know, cause of death for people in this country. And I was like, what? Like, no, he died of a very rare, weird, unusual disease. And I was like, oh, I just... I just didn't know anything about it. And, you know, there was a there was another girl at school whose dad had died when she was much younger. And we would, like, you know, give each other the eye roll when Father's Day came around and people were talking about stuff. But really, there wasn't that kind of openness of, like, hey, you know, do you want to bring him up? Do you want to talk about it? Everyone just acted like a really awful thing had happened. And it was so awful that they couldn't bring it up because God knows what I would do. I might explode. I might start crying. And you feel like you're sort of, like, 
tainted with death you know you've got this thing that's contagious and mustn't be spoken about because it's so dreadful no one else can handle it like it's my life that you're saying is so awful god can you imagine I can't imagine you're like well I don't need to imagine it's my life so I think that's the thing which we still have to be honest I don't think it's changed that much I think it's just easier for people in the club to find each other now and go yeah me too I also have this weird thing that no one wants to talk about to state the the obvious there's a particular tragedy about losing a parent as a teenager yeah definitely and that's why I put a whole section in the book to my beloved TGC as I call them the teenage grief club because I haven't read anything that really specifies like what it's like to be a teenager and everything I read would be like child adult and I remember reading a sentence in a grief book that said adolescents just treat them as children (laughs) and I was like oh well that's we all know teenagers are a very different breed to a child So yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book and I talk about, you know, really it's not just being a teenager, it's wherever you are in your life, you know, I call it personalized your grief, like wherever you are at that point, whether you've just become a parent or you've just moved away or you've left the family home, that grief will be affected by the situation you're in. And for me, I was mid conversation with a man who I really didn't know as an adult. I was 15 and a half when he died. So I really was at the point where I just thought he was an idiot and I'd spent my life telling him to leave me alone. But you know, I really was like, you'll always be there. As I say in the book, I think when you're a teenager, your parents are like a sofa. It's great. They're there, brilliant. But I'm not going to like clap it or talk to it. It's just there. And then when that sofa goes, you're like, oh shit, that was useful, wasn't it? I like, I did like that sofa. <laughs> it was kind of always there for me when I needed it to be. So yeah, it's a particular type of grief and it's often um, not dealt with till much later in life is the other thing, I guess it's important to say. Was there anything in processing your own grief that changed through writing the book or were you kind of there already? Talking about him every week on the show really kind of, I would say, maybe fast forwarded a lot of grief processing. <laughs> like I, as ever, I'm all in Jeff. So it was like intense therapy and I was having therapy on the side and I was talking about him and I was like, wow, I, after someone who's not talked about it for 20 years, I sort of decided to like only talk about it. But writing the book, I actually talk about a lot of stuff in the book that I've never said on the podcast. Like I had to kind of go back to the beginning, which I think I had really not processed or dealt with or moved away from I'm kind of going back to like the worst points of my grief it definitely helped I felt that there was a a kindness or a sympathy for your teenage self Mm. as well that you've really got into yeah I tried to because I didn't have that for a long time and I know so many people who lose a parent I would say pre-20 who then beat themselves up for what they did, how they grieved, or, you know, ignoring it or going out, getting drunk or not talking about it. I always say to people, like, just being a teenager or just being a child is hard. Adding grief to that is awful. <laughs> like, it's really difficult. Whatever you did, you did because you thought it was the right thing to do. And if you learned later it wasn't, that's okay. Can we talk about your mum in this? I mean, how, how does she cope with me <laughs> yeah, well no how, how, i mean at the, t- at the time oh, at the time you know yeah. now yeah i mean she's an amazing woman if you want to talk about like resilience in action like she's there you know my dad was the breadwinner and she had worked a bit but you know had left school very young and came from extremely working class background and suddenly had to look after two kids and a house and all the rest of it and she went back to college and went to university so she went to uni the year before I did so we both went through uni together 
<laughs> so we wow. would like compare having to do essays wow. and all of that. Like, yeah, she left school at 16. But obviously at the time I just thought, well, that's how people react to grief. That's fine. That's normal. And now I think, wow. <laughs> There's an amazing grief psychologist who does a lot of work in public called Julia Samuel, who is in- incredible. She's been on Griefcast twice. She's a really incredible person. And she says, you know, for children, when they lose a parent, the mental health of those children and the stability of those children depends on the parent who's left. When I think like my mum couldn't have done a better job really with the pair of us. I mean, my brother was 19, so he was almost out, but you know, he also was 19, so he he wasn't like (laughs) off her hands exactly. And now she's very like, yeah, she's, she's very proud. I mean, she's a bit like, oh, blimey, like... Do you want to really, you want to write all that down? Oh gosh. But um, <laughs> she liked the book and she was happy about it. So that was the main thing. And if there is sort of a central message to the book, it probably is that you've got to be forgiving about your own grief. There's no wrong way to do it. I, d- I did wonder if the, the wrong way to do it is feeling guilty about your own grief and how you're grieving. Yeah. And I think I say that a lot in the book, like basically there's no right way to grieve. There's no wrong way. There's no right way. There's just your way. And however your grief comes up, obviously, as long as it's not like incredibly harmful to you or your other people around you, it's fine, you know? And I think most people spend so much time worrying about how they're grieving that they don't often do the grieving. And that's what I did a lot. You feel so guilty and like, oh, I didn't do it. I should have done this. That you don't get to the bit where you're like, oh, I'm really sad they're not here. Like it's almost a way of sidestepping it. And, you know, you can't hurry the process. If you need to feel guilty for a bit, that's also fine. You know, like you just got to do what you got to do to get through one of the worst experiences that humans process. Talk to us about the five stages of grief and why. Why I hate them. Why why you hate them. (laughs) Yeah, I'm quite vicious about them in my book because... The five stages of grief, uh, people may be familiar with. So it's like, um, I always get it wrong. It's like denial, anger, depression, bargaining, acceptance. It's the five stages. Everyone's kind of familiar with them. Not everyone knows exactly what they are, but you're like, oh yeah, when someone dies, you go through these five stages. And it kept coming up on the show that, you know, oh, I didn't do the five stages. Oh yeah, me neither. I got it wrong. And I didn't go through five stages. And so when I came to write the book, I thought, well, let's find out where this comes from. It was written in 1969 by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on a book called On Death and Dying. And the subtitle is something like, On Death and Dying, What Medical Staff, Vicars and Clergies Can Teach the Terminally Ill. It's like, not ever written for someone who's grieving. She was someone who was working in hospitals with people who were dying of terminal illness, predominantly cancer, at a time when they were not told they were dying of cancer. They would be told, oh, take this medicine, you'll get better. Often if a woman was dying, they'd tell the husband, not the, you know, not the wife, so she wouldn't know. And Elizabeth said, if you tell people they're dying, they go through five distinct stages and they reach a point of acceptance. And it's our human right to know we're dying. That's a brilliant theory. It's absolutely watertight. I couldn't agree with her more that if you're dying and you know you're heading to an end, you're heading to a full stop, then yeah, that knowledge and that ability to go, oh, I need to apologize to that person, tell them I love them is great. How it then became applied to people who are grieving, I literally can't find it. I can't find where it suddenly became, oh, grief. And it doesn't work for grieving people because grieving people are not dying, they're living. So you have to live with grief. You can't reach the pace of acceptance where you're like, oh, and they died and I'm fine. That's not how it works. And no 
no modern grief psychotherapist agrees with it. Even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said it'd been misinterpreted. We wouldn't take medical advice from 1969. We wouldn't take female women's rights from 1969. You wouldn't eat sausages from 1969. (laughs) It's so useless. It doesn't work. It's unhelpful. And it, it offers you only feeling like you're doing it wrong. In the natural order of things, the, the death of a parent is an inevitability. Yeah. Um, but for, for both you and I think Ed, it was it was younger than is than yeah. what's normally or reasonably expected. Your mum's still around. How has the death of your dad affected your fear of her loss in the future? Oh God, massively. <laughs> we talk about it on the show all the time. So if you lose a parent at a young age you often end up with death anxiety because obviously the most stable person in your life disappeared. So that could happen to anyone, right? So I have lots of, myself included, lots of listeners who, if we don't get a text back, if we don't hear within two hours, if, you know, somebody's late, they're dead. That's the first thought, they're dead. And the way it's affected me is I am quite an anxious person, especially around illness and death. Um, Perhaps that's why I'm I'm not great with sympathy, as we mentioned before we started recording, because unless it's really serious, um, I don't have much sympathy with anything else. And I used to fight that a lot. I used to really fight that and be like, no, I don't want to be defined by my dad dying. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Everyone's dad died. I just got there early. But now I'm like, yeah, it matters. Of course it matters. In the same way it would matter if you moved from England to France at 15 or your parents got divorced at 15. Like these things affect us. And it's okay that life affects us. You can't put the walls up and go, no, nothing will affect me. I'm invulnerable. Um, And that's the scary place to be, but it's a much more truthful place to be. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Is there any preparing for grief that we could be doing better? You can't prepare for grief, you can prepare for death. So you can't prepare because each grief is different. Like if I lost another person, I will grieve very differently to how I grieve my dad. But you can certainly prepare for your own death and you can prepare for the people who around you. So you can talk about what they want for their funeral. You can make sure you know how many bank accounts they have. You can make sure you know that they have a will and where all the things are stored. And there's such a thing called advanced care planning. 
which is, you know, if something happens to you, if you're in a vegetative state, this is all stuff that I know sounds hideous and scary and makes everyone want to run away from me at parties. But this is all things we we can do. We can have these conversations now while we're well, we're not on morphine. We're not dealing with doctors going, we need an answer now. And so I think that conversation is so important and so valuable. And I will tell you now, after speaking to nearly 200 people on the Griefcast, the people who had deaths had been prepared for had an easier time at the beginning. It doesn't mean their grief was like less. You can't get that option, but you can certainly make it easier for the people you leave. And I think, why wouldn't you if you can? Do you think... Kerrid, I mean, there are other societies and cultures that do a better job than us. I mean, it's not a peculiarly British problem because I suspect all societies have some issues here. Yeah, it's interesting to me. There's lots of stuff that needs to improve. I will make British people feel better in that I went to Sweden to do a Griefcast Live and they are worse than us, which I thought was really nice because I thought, no, we must be the worst at talking about death. And they So you've got worse. big fans in Sweden? Uh, yeah, I got fans in Sweden. I went and did a podcast uh, festival over there. And when I got there, I assumed it was because, you know, they like talking about death. And they said, oh, no, we can't. So we thought you could help us. That's why we booked you. Wow. And so we have the phrase, I'm sorry for your loss, right? It's not a great phrase. People don't love it. But it's there. If you really don't have anything to say, you can always say, I'm sorry for your loss. And in Sweden, they don't have anything. They have no phrase. The only phrase they have is a really old-fashioned kind of um, oldie Swedish language. So the equivalent of me saying, dearest Sarah, my sorrow passes to you upon this day of your greatest heart. So they said to me, you can't say it because it's so weird. It's such an old-fashioned phrase. And I said, well, what do you say? They said, oh, we just say nothing. We don't say anything. That's so <laughs> and I was Swedish. Like, I was like, wow. Okay, so... You know, what What about when someone dies? They go, we just don't bring it up. We just don't bring it up at all. We just don't say anything. Wow. So, you know, it made me feel better. And the one, the culture I think is very good at accepting death in their society is, is Ireland, Irish culture. Everybody's very happy to talk about it. You know, I had an Irish comedian whose first memory was being held over a coffin <laughs> to look at a body. And they don't, they're not squeamish about it in the way that we are. You know, and if there's a funeral, you go. It doesn't matter you didn't know them. You go because you, you're you going for the person that you vaguely knew. You're going to support, show your respect. And I think in this country, we have a real squeamishness of, oh, I don't want to upset them. It's best I stay away. Best I don't say anything. And that kind of polite tidying up feeling is what makes grieving people feel alone. Now, you don't tell people how to grieve, but you do give us some advice about how to support others. I mean, I'm very struck that I, just having this conversation, I can remember the people who wrote to me, when my dad died, which was, you know, 29 years ago. And I remember the people who didn't write to me. And I remember what the people who wrote to me said. (laughs) And it is really interesting. You say, I think, let me know if there's anything I can do is a big no. Mm -hmm. No. I think this is really important, personally, from my personal experience. Yeah, I mean, God, I completely relate to you, Ed, because yeah, you people don't believe it, but you remember, you really remember the small gestures and... You know, as I say in the book, back in our day, letter writing was one way to do it. And, you know, I get it. Letter, you can be busy. It's hard to sit down. But now there is no excuse. Like, it's so easy to contact people now. You know, you you can message, you can WhatsApp, you can DM, you can, like, email. There's so many ways to just say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I just want you to know that I'm here. And if it, you know, 
I'm thinking of you basically. So don't think you can get away with not saying anything and it won't have a repercussion. Because I think people think, oh, it's fine. We'll be fine. Like I'm just not, uh, you know, that I don't know them that well. And it's like, no, I will remember. <laughs> I will remember that in my darkest hour, you were too embarrassed to say anything. Um, can, it, can I just offer a counter though? Sure, go because for it. <laughs> I, I really didn't like the admin of... Oh yeah, sure, sure. But you don't have to reply. I would say the other thing: people aren't respecting a reply. And also, Mm. the other thing is for for that kind of letter, for a letter of condolence, you don't need to reply. You don't. Someone should have said that to you. Yeah. (laughs) Did you you sit down with your pad and paper for five hours? You don't. You really don't need to reply. It was was more like a text message of condolence. Even felt like a Herculean effort to reply to. No, and you don't have to reply. And also, the thing you. The great thing you can do is the next time you do see them in real life is just go, oh, hey, thank, thanks for that. I, I really appreciated it. Like, or even years later, like this is the thing. People act like it's a short-term game and it's not. It's what I find weird. Because people think you're going to get over the grief and you're not going to talk about it. They don't then bring it up later. If you have gone down the road with someone, not said anything, and you're thinking, oh my God, I haven't said anything. It is perfectly acceptable. Two years, five years, 10 years later to say, I just want you to know when your dad died, I I didn't know what to say and I feel like I was a bit rubbish and I just want you to know I'm a bit sorry about that. Like I, that's absolutely fine. You don't have to get perfect immediately. I've had so many friends contact me after they've lost parents. Now they've joined the club years later and go, oh my God, I was so shit when your dad died. And I've gone, don't worry, we were young. It's okay. In a way, it's like what is one of the most important things. Anyway, God, tell us about, let me know if there's anything I can do. Yeah, I think people think... People think that's, a, again, it's a bit like, I'm sorry for your loss. People go, oh, I'll text, let me know if there's anything I can do. And until you get that text, until you're the griever, it's the shittest text because it's like, well, what? I don't know. I'm grieving. Like, I don't know what day it is. I don't know how to get dressed. I don't know how the world is still turning right now. And you want me to say what I need to do. Uh, can you do this? You know, like, we all know how hard it is to be an organized person. And you're asking them to be organized in grief. So the thing I always say is like, just think what, if you looked at your house now, what do you wish someone would come and do? Like, do you wish, oh, I just need someone to call up my bank and sort this thing out, take the bins out, or I would love someone to bring some fresh fruit because people keep sending biscuits. Like, do the thing you would do for yourself. Come round exactly the same as if someone's just had a baby. Do the thing, don't stay too long and go. Like, it's it's okay to offer help. And it's also all right for someone to say to you, do you know what, I don't want you to come around today. I'm feeling really shit. And you'd go, okay, that's fine. Again, long-term game. Come around a month later. You don't have to be there in the first two dramatic weeks. You can be there in six months time. You can be there in a year and go, I've put on my calendar that it's a year since your dad died. And I know that like, you're coming up to your anniversary. I was just thinking about you. Do you want to do anything on the day? Have you got anything planned? It makes a huge difference. But also it's not even actually about can I make you a pie? I mean, mm. you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, really, yeah. the the pie is quite secondary. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This thing about the, that you're onto about this, let me know if there's anything I can do, because it's like a practical answer to an emotional yes. yeah. sort of situation. Yeah. And it only leaves yeah. you with, there's nothing you can do, because the only thing I want done is that person back. And yeah. no one can do that. So you feel like you can't ask for anything because you're like, well, I don't know what to ask for because can you make this feeling go away? <laughs> it's like, 
no, no one can. But what, like you said, the pie is secondary. What you're doing when you support a grieving person is you're reminding them they're not alone because grief makes you feel really isolated. It literally lights up the part of your brain that lights up when you're depressed. You know, you feel like no one cares. You feel like no one understands you. And that's because grief is a completely unique experience. So it's true. No one does understand your grief in the way that you do. Even siblings grieve completely differently. Twins grieve differently. So your grief is very isolating. But if your community of friends and family and people who care about you can just keep showing up and being like, I'm still here, somewhere that reaches in you of like, I'm not I'm not alone, am I? Like, even though this feeling is unbearable, I have people around who are helping me carry it. If you care about someone, that's all you've got to do is just be like, look, I'm just here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to help, but I am going to be here. And when you are ready to talk, I'll talk. But if all I can do right now is sit next to you on a sofa in silence, I will sit next to you on a sofa in silence. Like I'm willing to do that for you. It definitely made a difference to me when lots and lots of people were affected by my dad's death and wrote to me and so on. I mean, I definitely remember that. Yeah, yeah, because you feel like oh, it's not just me who misses them, and I mean, I sort of remember the aggregate as well as the sort of individual, you know, who wrote yeah, and who yeah. didn't write and all that. But you know, I, de- I definitely think that it's that thing of like when someone's dead, you feel like they never existed, and when people don't want you to talk about their grief, it's like you're denying they because you're like, well, I don't want your grief is too embarrassing for me to talk about, or I don't want to get you upset, so therefore don't talk about them. So therefore did they exist? Like, are they real? Is this pain real? Like, it makes you feel almost mad that the world is not talking about the person who's not here anymore. And they kind of want you to go back to how you were before they died. And you you can't, you can't go back in time to where you didn't know what death felt like. It's also that thing about, I mustn't mention it because it will remind them and it'll upset them. Yeah, well, chances yeah. are that they're going to be like thinking about it anyway. They're already thinking about it. And as I yeah. say in the book, like, they're already dead. Like you can't like, oh, I might upset them. No, what's upset them is a person dying. (laughs) You can be awkward. You can, you know, mess it up. You can possibly make them cry. But like, you know what they're crying about? They're not crying about you. They're crying about the person that died. So like, let them. And again, this idea of like, I don't upset them. It's like, yeah, they should be upset. Someone just died. That's okay. (laughs) Like, I think we just, we treat sadness and emotion as embarrassing. And that's what makes grieving people feel so isolated. I want to say to people, let them know, let them know that you don't know what to say or you don't know what to do, but you just want them to know, look, I'm on the list. I'm going to be someone who's going to be here for you. I don't know how yet, but we'll figure it out together. It's such a different way of saying to someone, let me know if there's anything I can do. Towards the end of the book, you write um, about your, your daughter starting to ask questions about death. Let, let me ask you something. We have a son of a similar age yes. and he is, in a way that doesn't seem anxious, constantly talking about what he'll wear to my funeral <laughs> and how often he'll visit my grave. Nice. That's, that's and so I cool. worry that I did too much of the mourning of my mum was um, he was around for it. Was he too aware of it? And now it's made him hyper-focused on death. Like, is, is there a way we should think about children and, and grief? I think, again, I'd come back to, like, whatever way children need to process it is, is okay. Like, if the way he's processing you mourning is to kind of check in with you and be like, when you die, daddy, I'm going to be, I won't forget you. Like, I want you to know that. That's kind of sweet, you know? And I think, again, we we treat it like, oh, if they're thinking about death equals bad, equals bad parenting, I've done something wrong. Whereas they're not stupid. They know death exists. They know that it happens. And when, when adults lie about it and make it like, oh, it doesn't happen to you, don't worry, it will never happen to us. 
they get a full sense of security. <laughs> like, oh, great, I don't need to worry about death. And then if it happens, they're like, what the? And I've just tried to say, well, you know, what happened to my dad like didn't happen to lots of other people. Lots of people didn't lose their dad at 15 and I intend to live for much longer. But yeah, you know, one day you will die and I will die and that's what happens in this world and it's okay. It's not a terrifying thing. It's really sad, but it is what happens. And look, the first time I said that, I felt sick to my stomach. (laughs) I was like, I don't want to tell you. Like, take it back. No, everything will be fine. But I can't lie to her. Like, I don't think it's weird or morbid. I think it's just like, a thing that is going to happen. It's a lot to take in, but there's ways of talking about things that are age appropriate, I suppose. We're living at a point in history where medical advances mean that people die unexpectedly much less than uh, at any other point. Also, life expectancy is longer. So confronting death is part of people's day-to-day existence far less than it was. Do you think the fact that we don't have to confront it as often has made us perhaps worse at grief? Yeah, I think it's made the empathy and understanding of what people are going through trickier. But I think it's not just about the mortality rates. Like, obviously, lots of people live longer, but really it's the medicalization. Like, you know, our great-grandparents' age, our grandparents had people die at home. Because now people, lots of people die in hospitals and you don't see people dying or you don't see dead bodies, it's all tidied away. I think that makes people a lot more frightened. I had amazing guest, Dr. Catherine Mannix, who wrote a brilliant book with the end in mind. She did my show. She's a palliative care doctor who's written lots of brilliant books. And um, she went through for me what happens when a body died. And that was the first time after watching my dad die that I actually understood what was going on. Because Ed, Ed, you look instantly Yeah, you looked really Car- screamish. I was like, Carrie sorry, Ed. That. Yeah, I'm not, not so happy about death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, when Catherine actually described what what bodies sound like and what they look like it made it it made it such a healing process ed like it just made it like oh okay that's normal that is normal i'll go and listen to the episode well maybe this is a good place to to end which is it must be quite a business doing this show writing the book to be immerse yourself as you put it in death so much I mean, what keeps you optimistic i find such okay i'm gonna be cheesy i find such joy and optimism in accepting the finality of our lives. Like you're not here forever and everything is going to go and everything you know is going to change. So the fact that you're here now is a, is a miracle. Like you don't need that. That is proof. Everything you're seeing around here is only here for this present moment. And the appreciation I feel for my life and my kids and my family, because I have lost someone, there's a great joy in that. There's a great peace in that and the one thing I got out of my dad's death obviously I'm not glad he died but what I try and say in the book all the time is grief is not one thing or the other it's two things at exactly the same time and his death really did teach me to appreciate things and not just grab life as much as you can and I know that sounds so cheesy but I think we like a bit of cheese yeah when you accept death's gonna happen it makes living a, a bit easier I find well you write beautifully Cariad. Um it was such a joy to read the book and speak beautifully oh thank you uh, the book is You Are Not Alone A New Way to Grieve Cariad Lloyd thank you so much thanks so much that was great thank you so nice to talk to you Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd well, ho ho, we're in the outro, ho ho. We should say if people have ideas about future episodes, if people have 
lasagna recipes. I, I will be very yeah, interested. Hang on, hang on. See... Cheer, cheerfulpodcast.com, they can find us. Yes, go on. I'll be very interested to see what the response is to the appeal for lasagna, lasagna recipes. Because sometimes, if, for example, it's... Um, foxes getting in your bin we get a big response other times if we're asking for new theme music for example it's it's more of a trickle and it'll be interesting to see where the vegetarian lasagna falls on that continuum maybe there's like different aspects which vegetables Mm. what's the view on the bechamel sauce because i think there are some you can make without just with cheese how do you make it not too heavy is it a dish from a leisure centre in the 1980s? Should he deconstruct the lasagna? What's deconstructed? In You've been to posh restaurants where they've done deconstructed dishes and you think, I-, I wish you'd just constructed it, really. Although there is a sort of children's thing which the children don't like, or at least my children, they don't really like things that are mixed together. Mm, my father-in-law's a bit like that as well. When you're eating your food on the plate, do you have an order in which you eat it? Not really. I want my last mouthful to be the best mouthful, but you're always working against the fact that there's going to be a temperature drop. You've thought about this quite hard. You, you, do, you don't think about this? No. It's almost like you've got more important things to be thinking about, no, and I haven't. I think, it's, I think it's impressive. Shall we thank the brilliant Carrie Ad Lloyd? Yeah, she was just wonderful. In some ways, it was a really heavy conversation. We really got into it, but I just want to point out how funny the book is as well. There's a real lightness of touch that exists in the podcast, Griefcast. That is there in the writing of the book, and uh, I just wanted to make that point in case people think, oh, that's going to be a grim read. Uh, Thanks to our audio producer, Emma Corsham, and our content producer, Rachel Barmer, who is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed, composed the music James Deacon made our eye dance, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cullen. Let me say, Jeff, thanks to you as well for battling through your illness. You've shown real, real... Metal? True grit. True grit, finally. At the age of almost 50, I find true some grit. true grit within myself. Uh, and I want to say I'm incredibly sympathetic to you, whether you have a temperature or not. He's been the incredibly sympathetic and sometimes insincere Ed Miliband. <laughs> He's been the... Brave, true grit, Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Mm-hmm.